Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, we are talking the American Psychological Association and traditional masculinity. According to author Stephanie Pappas on the APA site, recently in the APA's report on traditional manhood, traditional masculinity, quote, is marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression. And Pappas says this, on the whole, it's harmful. So traditional masculinity, according to America's premier psychological association, Again, manhood being defined by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, and aggression is harmful. Well, that puts the matter in very stark terms, doesn't it? The guidelines go on to say that traditional masculinity ideology trains boys toward, according to David French, anti-femininity, achievement, eschewal or avoidance of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. If you push boys to this, the APA argues, you will limit males' psychological development, constrain their behavior, result in gender role strain, and gender role conflict. In other words, what the APA is saying is this, friends. If you teach traditional manhood in some form, including a religious form of the kind that I advocate and will be advocating in about three minutes, you are actually not going to help boys, you are going to harm boys. You see, manhood is very controversial today. Manhood is very controversial today. We've seen the Gillette ad recently. We've seen all sorts of uh, comments on toxic masculinity. Uh, Universities in Canada and elsewhere have set up confession booths at which men are encouraged and really called to go and confess their sins of being toxically masculine, which is to say, in many cases, masculine. What I want you to understand is that this report is not first and foremost calling out sinful or problematic masculinity in the way that someone like me, as a Christian theologian, is going to say we must do. We absolutely must reckon with sinful men and sinful women alike. In fact, that is the fundamental problem of humanity, sin. And sin does not abstractly reside in the corner of a room somewhere. Sin does not collect dust. Sin does not fester like mold in a gross fridge. Sin is in our hearts. We express sin. We are born with a sin nature, and out of that sin nature comes discrete, actual acts of sin. What that means for humanity, which is made either male or female by the very design of God, is that you are going to have one of two kinds of sinners. You're you're either going to have sinful men, or you're going to have sinful women. In this case, per this report, per the APA's writing, we're dealing with sinful manhood. Now, let's be very clear as, as we begin our brief commentary on this cultural matter today, that Christians should absolutely have a place for critiquing traditional manhood. We understand why manhood goes wrong. We understand why men sin. We understand why boys can be warped. We understand that we have to form young men into adult men very carefully. If you think about the character of an elder, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, you're going to recognize that a godly man, a mature man, 
not only is tough, not only is able to teach, not only is the husband of one wife, but is also gentle and and is somebody you can reason with and is humble. The godly man, then, is, is not the traditional macho man of 20th century American adventure and action film culture. The godly man is a man apart. The godly man is shaped fundamentally by the character of Jesus Christ. So he is not trying to be some sort of Christianized action star. He is trying to be, by the power of the gospel in him, by the power of the Holy Spirit in him, Romans 8, he is trying to be shaped and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And he is not merely striving for that to happen. The Lord is doing that work in any man whom he has saved, just as the Lord is doing work in any woman he has saved. He is shaping a man into the image of the true man, Christ Jesus, and he is shaping any woman out there whom he has saved into the image of Christ as well. He is bringing forth the fruits of the Spirit in man and woman alike. Jesus Christ has not offered up a separate atonement for men and another for women. Jesus has died once in the flesh to save sinful men and sinful women for himself, to make a people for himself. All this to say, we do not have any difficulty critiquing different cultural forms of manhood as Christians. In fact, the Bible from the very outset, Genesis 3 and following, is giving us, in many different angles and ways, an extended critique on sinners— It's presenting us with one sinful person after another. Now, many of those people are Christians, thankfully. Many of those people, in other words, in the Old Testament context, are followers of the true God. And yet, when you're even seeing a figure like a David or a Moses or an Abraham, uh, the, the covenantal leaders of God's people in the Old Covenant period, you recognize that you are coming face to face with a person who does not perfectly obey the Lord. You're dealing with a person who has to fight indwelling sin. And that's true, of course, in the New Testament as well. One of the apologetic proofs for the truthfulness of Scripture is that the apostles do not present themselves in the best light. Instead, they get things wrong. Instead, they literally at different points rebuke Jesus. Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, for example. Listen, that's not the kind of report you offer if you're trying to make yourself look great and present yourself as the perfect guy. So even the apostles of the New Testament, those godly men who are called to lead the church in gospel promotion and worship of the living God, even those figures recognize that they are not perfect. In other words, they need to be critiqued, they need to be assessed, they need to be remade by the Spirit's power. The church, then, has no difficulty, as I have said, in assessing where, for example, 21st century American manhood falls short of the biblical standard. That's, in fact, something we have to do. Whatever culture we're in, wherever we live, whatever era we find ourselves in, we have to critique, we have to separate cultural manhood from biblical manhood. So let that be said. At the same time, we also need to be very clear that American manhood is not necessarily quite so far off the biblical mark as we might think. In other words, just as there are going to be numerous ways in which American culture is not hitting the biblical mark, there are also going to be other ways where American culture has traditionally taught at least some truth to boys and has inculcated at least some virtue in boys. I would see very few people out there, for example, 
who would appreciate the generational sacrifice of the World War II generation, Tom Brokaw's greatest generation, or the World War I generation. And by the way, those are men who are fighting in those wars uh, in, in vast measure. Men are the ones who are drafted. Men are the ones who go overseas and fight. Men, uh, in terms of the hundreds of thousands of numbers, are those who lay their lives down to, for example, protect in World War II terms America from the threat of Nazi tyranny. That is a very big deal. Many of those men who died, many of those men who gave up their lives here and went to Europe and, and bled and suffered and gave up their lives were not necessarily Christians. And yet there was a witness in that culture. There was something reflected in the culture that is found in the Bible. The Bible is always going to be the standard for manhood and womanhood. Let's be very clear about that. But we, we do want to sound a note of caution, even as we seek to dissociate biblical manhood from cultural manhood, as we must do. We want to sound a note, a note of caution and say that there are also resonances in secular culture, at least to some degree in different cultures, of the biblical ideal found among unsaved people. Women who desire, for example, not to abort children, but to birth children, and then in some form take care of children and raise them and love them, are living out an imperfect but a meaningful version of the biblical ideal. That will not in any way lead them to heaven. It will not clear their sin. They must meet Jesus Christ in order to live eternally with God in heaven. They must trust the blood of Jesus Christ to wash them clean of their sin. They must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as their hope over the grave. But we do want to be very clear that when we see a mother loving her children and not aborting them in the womb, we are seeing a resonance of the biblical worldview. In the same way, when we see men step up and put their lives on the line in defense of others and protection of others to help others, when we see men doing hard things to bless other people or, to, or just to help other people, we are seeing a resonance, however distant, of the Christocentric ideal. So we don't want to lose that. This world is not so comprehensively fallen that there is no common grace here, and every person you see is not the living embodiment of satanic teaching. Thankfully, we are not as wicked as we could be, even in Adam. God has chosen to restrain our sin in Adam and allow even unsaved, unregenerate people to interface and bump up against certain truths and certain ideals, even though they don't know the reason why they necessarily would, for example, love their children in the case of a mother who is staying home to care for those children, or a father who would uh, volunteer uh, to, to give his life in the armed forces and go overseas to defend and protect his country. Or a, per, a, a person, a man who would step up in a, a very difficult situation, somebody being taken advantage of, a, a robbery or a crime, a man who would put his life on the line to save someone else. Again, those, those individuals may not in that moment be confessing that they know Christ, but they are nonetheless acting in a way that we can affirm. We cannot affirm that their, that their actions, however however good, in common grace terms, are going to in any way acquit them, but we can also make clear that traditional masculinity has advocated some very important truths. 
It has stood for some absolutely essential elements of manhood. Young boys, in my view, should be trained in a proper form of stoicism. If you're not training your son to be able to endure hardship, you're not setting him up to be a very well-functioning child. He's going to really struggle as a boy. You need to train your boys to be tough. You want your boys, at least to a degree, to be competitive. You want them even to to try to win in different events and, and different undertakings. You want them to be properly aggressive. Anytime you see a boy acting in aggression, you don't want to think that's wrong and that's sinful. Now, in all of these realities and all of these behaviors and practices, the gospel and the Christian worldview is going to very much shape our understanding of these traits. We, we don't, in other words, simply rubber stamp American manhood as believers and say, well, that's all great, and then we'll teach them to pray the salvation prayer, and they're good as biblical men. No, 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 let's not get confused here. Godly men have to train their sons in a distinctively Christian way, just as godly women have to train their daughters in a distinctively Christian way. That is part of the beauty of the Christian home. We show that by the power of Christ in us, we are remade men and remade women, and now we do not live as men and women as the world lives. We live as men and women apart. So let's get all of these things in proper proportion. But we cannot miss as Christians that when we see boys being trained to be men and not girls— when we see boys being trained to achieve and step forward and put themselves on the line for others and to try to overcome their weakness, and we we see boys cultivating a sense of adventure, and we see boys risking their own comfort and safety, and we even see them developing themselves physically so that they can protect themselves and others, those are all resonances of biblical truth in them. Those are all little images of what manhood is truly supposed to be. No man is going to live out these traits perfectly. No Christian man is going to hit the mark perfectly. We're all a work in progress. And yet, I want to be a voice in a very, very confused age for saying that we must not give up an understanding of manhood, not simply biblical manhood, but even in a cultural sense, what is sometimes called traditional manhood. Here's a statistic I give people when I speak on these things. I speak regularly about manhood and womanhood, sexual ethics and more, the family, all from the biblical perspective, all from the the Christian worldview, all from sound doctrine. A stat that is absolutely telling when it comes to boys and girls, men and women, is that on average, men have 1,000% more testosterone than women. Now, what does a stat like that mean? It is telling us something, not that is separated from the Bible, but that is expressive of God's creation of the man and God's creation of the woman. In other words, friends, here it is. January 2019, soon to be February. It's winter here in Kansas City. It's cold. It's hard to get outside. It's been 5 degrees, 10 degrees with wind chill factored in here in Missouri the last few days. It's been pretty rugged. Winter is pretty rugged for young families. And some of you out there, you know what I'm talking about. Well, what happens in these winter months is that 
Children in general, but boys in particular, can be ping-ponging off those walls of the house, driving dad and mom, in particular mom in some cases, a little bit crazy. Why is that? Well, yes, sin has to be factored in, of course. It's, it's profoundly affected both boys and girls, yes. But also, God has made boys to his glory in a distinctive way, and part of that special formation is that boys would have 1,000% more testosterone on average than girls. Friends, that is an abs- absolutely constitutive statistic. That is telling you that a boy is hardwired for aggression and action, a a boy is going to find it a lot harder to sit still, frankly, the average boy anyway, than a girl. And that biology, we don't go to biology to tell us what to believe in Christian doctrine, but that biology is mirroring what we see in Scripture itself. When you're seeing, for example, in Genesis 2 that the man is called to keep and watch over the garden, Genesis 2, you recognize that God has structured the man for just the kind of tasks, just the kind of life he wants this man to live. He hasn't done this on accident. And you see that when the Lord has structured women to be able to bear and nurture children, he has coded something into womanhood that is seen at the physical level, that is seen biologically— Again, biology doesn't instruct the Scripture, but biology in these cases, at least in in many situations, does reflect the divine design, creational order for men and women. Boys are made by God for aggression and action. Does that have to be rightly channeled? Absolutely. Friends, that's part of why it is so essential to have a father and a mother in the home. Some boys need medication to manage their genetic conditions. But many boys today who are on Ritalin and who are on drugs don't need drugs. They need a father. They need, they need a man in their life who can train them, who can help them master their emotions, who can inspire them, who can encourage them, who can love them who can train and discipline them. That's not going to solve every issue, even if you have a godly father who tries to do all of those things, prays to do all of those things in Christ, and works hard to get them done. Even if you have a godly father, if you have a boy who, who is brimming with life and energy, he must be converted to, to, to have true self-control. And yet, a godly father is is not going to try to take the boyishness out of his boy. He is going to try to corral it and temper it and funnel it in a God-glorifying direction. Manhood, manhood is a real reality. Manhood is tough. Men are supposed to be tough. Men are supposed to be manly. Sometimes people talk about what's the essence of manhood, what's the essence of womanhood. As if, by the way, you can separate men from their essence and women from their essence. If you're looking at a man, at least to a degree, you're looking at manhood, okay? If you're looking at a woman, as, as made by God, yes, you're looking at womanhood, at least to a degree. Can we err? Can we take manhood in a direction it should not go? Absolutely. That's what the APA is exactly trying to do right now. It's effectively trying to blur the lines between manhood and womanhood. If you pick up a men's magazine today, 
in 2019, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to come across articles that talk about how we used to view uh, the sexes in hidebound terms, starkly defined terms, and now we understand that we should blur those boundaries and blur those lines, and we should deconstruct the stereotypes and all these sorts of things. It's fascinating when you actually go to Scripture and you look at, for example, what the Apostle Paul says about his missionary journeys in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. Here's what he says. Let me just read this for you afresh as we think together about manhood. We're almost done with our little survey here. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. the Apostle Paul, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Friends, we might isolate that passage as about Paul and missions. What is behind Paul's commentary on his efforts to get the gospel out, efforts that distinguish him from the super-apostles who are trying to take him down in the context of this letter. What is behind his zeal for the gospel and gospel promotion on these very brutally difficult missionary journeys is his manhood. That's why Paul is going to say to this same church, act like men. He says it to the whole church, to man and woman alike act like men, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. He says that because manhood is supposed to be tough. It's supposed to endure hardship. You're supposed to put yourself on the line as a man. As a man in biblical terms, you're supposed to be the one who works very hard to provide for your family so that your wife can, Lord willing, bear and nurture and and raise and train children at least much of the day. As a man, you're supposed to be the one who protects your family. Ephesians 5, the image of Christ who laid down his life for his bride. As a man, you're supposed to be the spiritual head of your family. Think of the elder, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It's not the woman who's supposed to keep uh, children and a household in right order. It's a man. The man is supposed to be the, the head. The man is supposed to be the leader. So biblical realities, biblical principles like these are pointing us to see, taking into account Paul's profound testimony in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, that there is such a thing as manhood, that it is supposed to involve enduring and bearing hardship in the name of and by the strength given by Jesus Christ. And this is all supposed to give God great, great glory. Let me leave you with this. People today say that traditional manhood is controversial. It surely is controversial, isn't it? Everywhere around us, we're seeing people chip away at manhood, question what a man really is, tear down the stereotypes. And listen, if you go looking for bad examples of manhood in numerous areas, traditional, Christian, ah, traditional, choose it. You will find them. Why? It's not because 
traditional manhood is the original sin of this world. It's because original sin is our fundamental problem, and it infects both men and women. But the solution to that problem is not to give up on any strong sense of manhood and any strong sense of womanhood. The solution is to reframe these categories in biblical terms. And when our culture does bump up against the ideal, the biblical ideal, to be thankful for that in a common grace sense. But listen to me, friends. If people have trouble with traditional manhood, just wait till they get a load of Christological manhood. Because Jesus is the true man. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is not a nice, neat, and clean figure in a kind of damped-down, postmodern American sense. Jesus, in Revelation 19.11, comes in righteousness to make war. Jesus is the emblem of manhood. Jesus is the Savior of men and women alike, and yet Jesus was a man, and his manhood matters, and it matters for men today because we are losing our grip as a culture and even as the church on a meaningful conception of manhood. What we need to do in a situation like this is go back to the Scripture and go back to Christ, and we need to reform our understanding of manhood accordingly. We can only scratch the surface in these few minutes and talking about what that is actually going to look like. It's going to look like the character of an elder, as I have said in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It is going to look like Jesus Christ. It is going to look like the example and image of godly men throughout the Scripture. It's also going to look like repentance and humility and confession of sin and gentleness when called for and love, lots and lots of love and joy in Christ and the ability to weep and mourn when that is called for. But it is also going to look like toughness, the willingness to endure hardship, and even the desire to put your life on the line for others. Because that, my friends, is the very burning center of the example of Christ the true man. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.